Hello and welcome to Unpacking Contract Law, the UK-based contract law podcast delivering unsolicited opinions on new and old contract law cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to provide you with an insight into our thoughts, ideas and ideologies around all things contract law. It also provides us with an outlet for all our opinions, so you listen at your own peril. Each podcast will feature a new contract law case with a discussion from three contract law enthusiasts. And it is thus my great pleasure to introduce you to Maggie Hemsworth, Severine Santier, and myself, Tim Dodsworth. Welcome to Unpacking Contract Law. Welcome, dear listeners. This is the third podcast in our series of Unpacking Contract Law. Uh, my name's Maggie Hemsworth, and I'm joined by my rather excellent colleagues, Doctors Santier, if I'm saying the French correctly, I'm probably not. Severine, do you want to say hello? hello? You are perfectly pronouncing it. And Dr. Dodsworth. Hello from me. Today, we're going to unpack a case called Canary Wharf and European Medicines Agency. And this is actually a landlord and tenant contract law case. Um, And I'll say a little bit in intro and, and then we'll... Uh, start unpacking it for uh, for proper, as it were. But um, I I was going to say at the outset, I don't know about you two, but there are two words this year that I really loathe and detest, and I really don't want to ever hear them said again. And those two words are Brexit and lockdown. (laughs) Well... And I'm afraid today we're going to be talking about the B word, but fortunately not the L word. So let's just to set the scene, uh, the facts and the decision in this case. So in summary, Canary Wharf, what a surprise. We're talking about London. Uh, Canary Wharf um, are or were at the relevant time landlords of commercial premises in London. And uh, the EMR, EMA, which is the European Medicines Agency, is an offshoot or an agency, an arm of the EU. And they had taken a 25, quite a long term lease of commercial premises in Canary Wharf. Um, and the lease had started well before uh, talk was serious about Brexit. Uh, but once it became uh, something more than a, a dream that, or a nightmare that somebody had had, uh, the EMA decided to relocate to Amsterdam and wanted rid of their lease. And they hit upon the idea of claiming that the tenancy of the lease was frustrated, which is why we're unpacking it today because it's contract law. And um, the proceedings are actually brought by the landlord, by Canary Wharf. So civil lit aficionados out there like me would be interested to know that this was a CPR part eight application. How exciting is that? Meaning there wasn't any argument about the facts, but it was just a legal dispute. Uh, And so it's um, uh, featuring on this topic of, of frustration. So the EMA claimed on two basic grounds. Uh, The strongest ground they thought they had uh, was supervening illegality. In other words, they were arguing that because of the UK's exit from the EU, it would no longer be lawful for them to have their office, their premises 
in London. They would need to be uh, in one of the 27 EU member states, and we were no longer one of those. Uh, and it would be no longer lawful for them to make profitable use of the premises. They couldn't occupy it. They couldn't even continue to pay the rent. Um, and uh, the fact that they relocated to Amsterdam meant that they would effectively be paying double rent, which would, uh, the phrase was used, impair their functions. In other words, they'd be strapped for cash. The second ground was a common purpose of the lease as between landlord and tenant would end with Brexit. So there were two heads that they were claiming, this frustration of common purpose and separately this supervening illegality idea. Um, very long judgment for anyone who's ploughed through it. I forget how many pages, but it's all good stuff. Uh, anyway, the actual decision, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask the good doctors whether they think they would be surprised by that. Personally, I am not surprised by it anyway. But the, the end result was uh, bad luck, EMA. This is not a political decision. Remember, this is a legal decision, but your lease is not frustrated. It would not be unlawful for the EMA to continue to hold the lease and to pay rent. Uh, it would not uh, be easy for them to transfer the lease to a third party, but they could do it technically under the lease. That's possible. It might be difficult finding someone, particularly as the premises uh, were kind of like uh, developed with their particular layout interests in mind, actually. But nevertheless, the commercial premises in Canary Wharf, there would have been some taker at some point at some price. Um but uh, Brexit would simply make it less attractive, I suppose, to the EMA to be in London. Um, and in any event, there is an argument about self-induced frustration. In other words, they brought it on themselves by deciding to relocate anyway, regardless of anything the court said, uh, and, and uh, taking up their... Um, chattels and moving physically to Amsterdam, they kind of like brought it on their own heads. I think that is the simple way of looking at self-induced frustration. And, and as to common purpose, um, there isn't really on the evidence a common purpose between these particular parties other than one, the simple one, landlord and tenant. Um, and so the, the Brexit really of itself does not uh, impact adversely or otherwise on that basic common purpose. Uh, so I, I suppose simplistically, therefore, the one liner is EMA, uh, you've got a lousy case and you've just lost. And I don't know how much it cost them. So throwing it over to the esteemed doctors here, my first question to, be, to you would be, uh, that bloodbath, was that a foregone conclusion? Or was that a battle worth fighting? What do you reckon? Well, um, it's. I think it. It was probably regarded as a. Or let's you know have a test case. I mean, it's interesting to see the language that was used by uh, Mr. Justice Marcus Smith talking about Brexit as a seismic event. Uh, and yes, it was not anticipated at the time that the lease was uh, entered into, uh, but for the reason that you've mentioned, Maggie, it was not frustration since the lease uh, contained, looking at the contract, the lease itself contained uh, events 
where uh, EMA might have indeed uh, divested itself um, of the premises. So, yes, I've got a lot of, you know, sympathy, but... Well, um, you would have your French. (laughs) (laughs) But the, you know, the, 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 the argument, you know, brought forward, you know, the common purpose, I thought that was rather strange. Mm. And so therefore the reaction of, uh, you know, the, to the common purpose, no way, there was a common purpose. There was clearly, you know, um, financial interest for both parties, which were not aligned. And, you know, the contract was negotiated as such. So, yes, I think it was probably... Jumping in on that frustration of purpose point, I mean, to me, uh, looking at it from a possibly lecturing perspective, is it, it, it seems to me that the, the purpose here, um, and as the judge quite rightly, quite rightly said, one of them had clearly implicitly taken on that burden. And I mean, to me, that is, is pretty much the difference between Krell and Henry on the one side, the procession being the, the, the main point, but then Herne Bay and Hutton on the other hand. And this falls so squarely within the Herne Bay and Hutton uh, argument, where one of the parties are clearly taken on uh, the risk of this happening and therefore tough luck. Uh, so I, I, I must admit, I'm with you on this one, Severine, that the frustration of purpose argument seems to be almost the prime example of where it doesn't fit in with Krell and Henry, um, namely that one party had taken it on. So I suppose that's the difference between common purpose and single purpose, if, if one can express it that way. Uh, the EMA had a, a purpose to only be in the UK so long as the UK was in the EU, but that's not a shared uh, purpose. No, and I don't, I don't think, I don't think uh, Canary Wharf had any had any question about having any interest on whether they were or not. That was never part of the, the agreement. Um, that never even, probably never even entered their mind um, as, a, as a point. No, it... although perhaps to play devil's advocate, I mean, we haven't seen the layout of, of the building and its position, uh, but perhaps it is prestigious to have uh, an agency like that in a, a high-quality, high-class commercial premises in, in the City of London. So um, w- would they have been a particularly attractive tenant, I suppose, is what I'm saying? Well, they, they, would, they would be, and I think it was discussed uh, by uh, Marcus Smith to look at, you know, as part of the context uh, of the agreement that actually when the lease was entered into, um, you know, when they started negotiating, the, the, you know, can, uh, the building was not actually built. And so I mm-hmm. think um, one of the factors that uh, uh, Justice Marcus Smith looked at was that, in fact, it was a really big coup for Canary Wharf to have managed to secure uh, EMA as a tenant, because I think it, it I, I think Justice uh, Smith did say that they, you know, the building might not otherwise have been built. Uh, so I think that clearly was important. And even though they did not dictate everything in the manner in which the layout was done, uh, I think they had a, a, a an important part. But I think that's that is different from the common purpose for which the uh, tenancy was um, entered into. 
And I think, again, looking at the judgment, he, uh, Marcus Smith did say that um, there were clearly rival negotiations driven by different commercial objectives. So um, I think the context was important, but was the contract entered into uh, for the same purpose? No. Um, I, I think here it's it's a business venture. The EMA had, a, as it were, a, a business purpose. Me having a lease, you know, I, with with say another store, I don't take on their objective. So if I let a supermarket, you know, lease out my my rooms, I have no interest in whether they're going to be successful as a store or not. Um, and I think that's pretty much the same argument here. It's it's, it's not a joint venture in which in which the um, the owner of the building is in any way interested in what the EMA is going to be doing. Okay, they, they put terms in the contract which restricted the subletting, but I, I, even then, that's no indication they're actually taking on this, the, the commercial venture of the other party. But I suppose, uh, just to play devil's advocate again, um, this concept of common purpose is a slippery sort of concept, isn't it, really? Because in most contracts, the the objectives of each party are entirely selfish, if you like, and to the extent of the contract, there is the meeting point, if it was a Venn diagram, their two separate selfish interests intersect at that point for the purposes of the contract. Um, but, it, but you know, it's quite hard to see that as a common purpose. I would say it's a sort of overlapping purposes which, which unite at that point. Um, joint venture is, is, is a difficult, different thing, I would say. And partnership is a different sort of thing. They're in, in a contract and they are moving together in the same direction together at all times. But your average contract is probably not really of that nature. So I, I, I personally find the common purpose thing a slippery concept. Yes, I would agree with that. I think so. We mustn't forget that here, the you know, the argument was that you know it was a you know failure of the or you know frustration of the common purpose in in a frustration you know in in as a frustrate in in order to frustrate the contract so it's slightly different i guess from you know so the joint the idea of a, a you know a common purpose in a joint venture or in a partnership i guess probably would come closer to defining what is a relational contract but that's a completely different you know, discussion mm -hmm. uh, to yeah. be had. Yes, I think I was over-egging it a little bit with the joint venture. Yes. I was trying to uh, <laughs> trying to kind of push in the yeah. direction of you know they they didn't venture into this together. They, this was not a this was not something that they were that that the owner of or Canary Wharf were in any kind of way interested in what they were going to be doing in there, um, and I, that that would need to at least be the case. Well, in Krell and Henry, for example, the, at least the, the reason for letting it out was the procession. Yes. Right? And that, and that was something they both had an interest in. It explained the price, it explained everything else. So I think that's, that's pretty much where I was going with that. An initial, so the, the, the basic frustration argument was a little more interesting. And I think, if anything, that was the one where there was a potential for success the fact that it was illegal 
Um, and that made it, I, I thought that was the interesting part of the case, actually, less, less so the frustration of purpose angle. Um, what were your thoughts on that? But it certainly took a lot of <laughs> paragraphs <laughs> to go through <laughs> with all the various <laughs> scenarios about, you know, what they meant by the, uh, you know, supervening illegality. But yes, I think it probably always was. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong, Maggie and, 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 and Tim, but the way I understood it, and I might have completely misunderstood it, is that because it was... Once the decision had been taken by the referendum to leave the uh, EU, I understood the supervening illegality uh, to be slightly different from what you said, Maggie. To me, the way I had understood is that because the EMA was effectively a, a formal representation of uh, the EU, yeah. An, agency, an, an agency, an, an arm, arm of, of the, the EU. EU. Yeah, yeah. It had to be within uh, one of the, you know, as you said, one of the uh, uh, member states of the EU. So the way I had understood it is that it was the the fact that there was a, a, a regulation which was passed in 2018 relocating them in in in. Amsterdam. So that's what I had understood to be mm -hmm. the supervening uh, elite. Well, I, th I, I think I think the judge dealt with that because he's saying uh, legally under uh, the uh, the way in which the EMA is constructed and set up, it would be entirely lawful for them to have a base, say, in Switzerland. Mm. Or, or any country, actually, and um, that is not uncommon. I think um, they were citing some examples where a branch or an agency or just happens to be located other than the EU, and and that I think has probably put a, an enormous hole in that argument um, as to I ha I have to be based in an EU state. That, that it just doesn't seem to pan out with the evidence. So do we think it would have been frustration then if if it had actually been illegal for them to have their head office elsewhere? Yeah. Uh, possibly yeah. a stronger argument, but so long as that had been put into place as a matter of law, I suppose before uh, any talk about Brexit, because otherwise you're down the road again of is this self-induced frustration? In other words, you have created this illegality by passing some directive or whatever regulatory control the EU operates uh, um, using to control the agency, you've made it yourself. You know, so self-induced is, remember, it's got to be outside of your control. So if the EU has made it unlawful by its own diktat, I think that would be a, a real problem in terms of self-induced frustration. But if the e um, EMA was set up on the basis that you have to be based uh, in an EU state in order to lawfully conduct the EMA business, then I think they would have a much stronger argument because that well predates uh, any of these events that are the subject of the. What problem. do you mean? Really, I don't. I don't think so. I don't. I don't. I. Why? If, so why? If the even if the EU as as a body. Um, because they're still separate, the EMA is still separate in, in, in terms of where it fits in. If, if the law, as it were, that's created makes it illegal, 
Well, if you're the right EMA then, Tim, it, if you're yeah. right then, Tim, they would be doing this now and having another bash at this and to say, well, the, the circumstances have changed. If it wasn't supervening illegality a year ago, it no, is clearly, now. I, I think clearly, it, it, you know, the, 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 what we are saying is, you know, there would have been a better chance if it had been a requirement under European law that they had to be within, uh, then that... I, I don't see how that would have been, you know, self-induced because, of course, that look. No, I, I, I'm agreeing yeah. with you thus far. My point about self-induced would be a timing one. So if you bring this law in after ah, the no, 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 Brexit no, no. event, yeah, no, I wasn't. Like I, that, I wasn't right. saying okay. that. If it had been a requirement, and you know, right, right from, from the, the word, word go, go then, though, you're yes. saying yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. Um, but that, you know, they they looked at that. I think that came yeah. up in the judgment to look at the way in which the EMA yeah. is structured, the way it's legally capacity. it is, uh, it yeah. operates, who controls yeah. it, in what way is it. So th that was, I think, a live point, as it were, and was fully rehearsed uh, in the judgment. Uh, and, um, you know, that enabled the judge to say, well, actually, I can't see anything in your rules that you could set up in Switzerland. So, you know, what, what's, what is your problem about London yes. suddenly? Unfortunately for them, yes. Um, on the foregone conclusion thing, I was reminded of something I read, uh, Lord Hailsham. Uh, it's the panel Pina case. Now, now Tim is the case man, um, so he'll know this. But, uh, oh, dear. <laughs> but Lord Hailsham... Piling that, on the pressure. <laughs> no, I mean, Lord Hailsham in that case, uh, I think it was Landlord and Tenant, he said um, how rare it is going to be for a, a lease to be uh, frustrated. And he's actually saying this is likely to be a choice between never and hardly ever. So, you know, it's very rare for leases to be frustrated. And I don't know what you think about that, the, why that is so. But simplistically, I would have thought because most uh, leases are quite long in duration, and most events that you happen to see that are seriously adverse um, have a beginning and they have a finite end and you've still got some of the lease to run, as it were. Uh, and then coupled with that, your your interests ever in about force majeure, yep. if I'm saying it at all right. Um, yep. Most leases would make some provision themselves. And so we don't even go down the road of the law of frustration, because remember how narrow that is. And it's almost like a default set of rules if the parties haven't sorted themselves out with express provisions. So most leases... Uh, would have something in it. So, you know, one, one is a bit surprised it, to a certain extent, simplistically, that a 25-year lease of commercial premises in Canary Wharf doesn't have some provisions about change, adverse I changes. But well, I, and, and that's not really surprising, is it? Because uh, the, the actual being able to have the lease is, is going to be very rarely actually illegal. So what, what you're going to find is that whatever it is, is the reason for which they have it, right? I was thinking of, you know, someone leasing a premises to do something which then the sale of whatever it is uh, becomes illegal. Yeah. yeah Say that, right. you know, I, I, lease, I lease a property uh, as a bakery and suddenly it becomes illegal to sell bread in the country. Even then, I don't think that that would actually be frustrated. I think I think you, even then, unless it had been you know, clear, you take on that risk. Unless it by had been clear that it was a common yeah, purpose. Well, you, yeah, you'd yeah you'd have to look. 
you'd yes you'd have to yeah. look at the permitted yeah. uses of the tenancy and and normally it's a range of permitted uses rather than the only thing you are enabled to do is sell yeah. and make bread uh, that would be but a then very we would be unusual down the purpose route rather than the illegal route yes well, both, I suppose. But what if it were a requirement of the lease that you sell bread? Then if that becomes illegal, then that would be... Yes, yes absolutely. Yes, if, yes. if I promise that I'm going to be selling bread, but yes. that's even even if that, that wouldn't be the case no, if I'm promising... No, but the other way around as well. I only grant you the lease provided that yes, you sell bread. but that would be very unusual, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. Because that's, that, that's what I'm saying. We, Most we, leases we, we, we are, say you, you know, mustn't do X, Y, Z... You mustn't do X, Y, Z rather than you must do A. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. We are speaking. Yeah. But that would be a purpose, though, surely. That would let's, be what? Let, let's, so that would be a frustration of purpose because both, and in that case, I'd be quite happy with that because both parties have taken on this venture, right? I've got a shopping wall in which it's really important that I sell bread on a Saturday morning, which is fresh out of the oven, yes. and therefore I'm granting okay. this lease but, only. But remember, they're this. not mutually exclusive. Uh, just as in this case in Canary Wharf, you've got an argument that it's uh, one or other or both. Uh, um, you, you, you could you could simply argue in the same way. They're just different routes, but the, in some narrow fact circumstances, both routes might be applicable. Um, I, I agree that you could you could go down both routes, but I, I'm I'm finding it hard to see, and and this agrees with the Panarpina case, it, how how you would try and frame that in a lease kind of sense it would be you'd have to frame the lease in a very specific way for the lease itself to be frustrated to fall within the illegality section and the frustration of purpose i think would then be easier if in our bread example but i don't think the illegality element would work at all in the bread scenario i just can't i because one other party seems to be taking the risk um and I think the risk element is actually quite a big part in, in this case as well. Um, one is that actually this can be sorted out quite nicely through the remedies, right? There's, there's going to be a breach of contract on the part of the EMA, and I may be misunderstanding here, there'll be a breach of contract on the part of the EMA, the Canary Wharf will have to mitigate their losses, they will find somebody else, it may take a while, but they will eventually find somebody else and therefore things well, will sort I, it, itself it out. Well, yes, but it probably won't pan out exactly like that. The EMA will now have to be working hard to find an acceptable assignee to Canary Wharf. And in that the would be the interest, yes. And in the meantime, they are on the hook, as it were, for the rent. Yes. And that's that's really their, their beef about the whole thing because they're having to pay double rent. Yes. They've they've already rented, which may be unfortunate, but they've got two years to they've got two years to figure that out, haven't they? Um, so I'm, I I find I have I don't have much sympathy here, which is quite unusual. I normally find myself <laughs> sympathising, um, particularly on the political stance, which we are firmly leaving out of this podcast. Um, I, I would find myself sympathising, but here I really don't because the the moment in time when it happened to the actual moving did provide a two year window. For them to find someone to take over. Okay, the lease did confine that. Well, I suppose way. procedurally um, it's interesting because it was Canary Wharf, the landlord, who um, took the initiative, as it were, and commenced proceedings. It was they seeking a, an effectively a negative de declaration. Uh, it is not frustrated, whereas it was not the EMA that were um, active, as it were. They were trailing along as defendants to this one. 
True. Mm. Yeah. That's true. That's true. So what? What of in? That's my second question. What of interest, other than politics? Let's not go down that murky, murky mire together. Um, s- sticking with the law. Um, anything else of interest to you too? When you when you look at this case, it, in a way, it um, it, it the, the first. A few paragraphs almost come as a warning to the parties. You know, the frustration requires a multifactorial approach and is not to be invoked lightly. Uh, I thought that was, um, you know, after going through the various bases for frustration, which I thought was, you know, slightly weird because I think it's very well established, you know, what, uh, you, you know, what are the, you know, it's almost as if, you know, he was okay. Let's add a few. He was. You know. He was writing it for our students. That's true. Actually, that's, that's you know <laughs> that's quite a neat little judgment that sets out. I know, and a and, and step by step approach. Yeah. That's good reading. Therefore, I know for those is of this, us who are writing textbook, it's defend her textbook and the need there. I know they, uh, for those of us who are writing textbook, it's brilliant because then you can just delete the whole you know discussion. And so, so now, what I, are you complaining <laughs> about, Severine? He's done you a favour. That it is two hundred and you know how many paragraphs long. You know that it is a fairly you know lengthy decision. So yes, on a on on a clarity viewpoint, I think you know this has to be you know a a, a bonus. It is you know a, a very very well considered. Uh, I think. Um, that all the because what we are not saying is that there were various scenarios that uh, Marcus Smith was going through for each of the ground for frustration, supervening illegality, and frustration of the common purpose. Well, is, he, is he trying to take care so that he's not appealed? Um, is he trying to take great care to set it out very carefully? This was my decision making process, this is the law. Yeah. Um, so to to actually nail it down yes but also i think to to reassert the position in english law that frustration is just not easy uh, to establish so on that it's very much in line with the uh, underlying principles of uh, english contract law that you know the, the the courts are not going to undo very you know in any way if they can um, a, a decision, a, a contract. So I think that's it. It doesn't break new ground, uh, but it does reassert the law in a clear manner. And I guess that is a bonus, as you said, for anyone who reads the law. I think it's relative. It's relatively easy to do to see what the judgment was trying to do, which was it was predicting the impact this case was going to have, even at this stage. Right, this was Brexit and frustration. We, everybody has been waiting for a case along these yeah. lines. So I think there's a good justification there for why this is such a lengthy judgment. It was just a bit of foresight on what was coming, not necessarily that it might be appealed. And I don't think there was much prospect that it was going to be appealed on the basis that I think the parties were just looking for a, a ground to start negotiation. Yeah. Um, and, and they have settled since, as far as I understand it. So it, it, that was a little predictable on that that front is probably EMA trying to say, well, we tried. Um, now let's get down to how much we've got to actually pay. Um, that's that's where I would 
I would put that, that at least the length of the judgment as a justification. Hmm. Uh, well, I don't know about you, but I, I thought was interesting was the reference to something more elemental. If you look in the judgment about this idea of common purpose, uh, he's saying it requires regard to be had to something more elemental than can be identified merely by reading the terms. So it's coming back to this slippery thing that I have trouble with, this common purpose, and how you identify where you find this common purpose. It is not purely the terms, because he talks about it's something more elemental. And, and that enables him to talk about this multifactorial approach, which is looking in two directions. It's looking backwards, if you like, to the time the contract was made, the terms, the factual matrix, the party's knowledge and expectations then. And so that's backward looking in, in the way I see it. Plus also forward looking, now looking at the nature of the supervening event, which no one's really thought about at the time of this lease. Um, and the calculations objectively that one can make for the parties as to the future performance, that one's entirely forward looking. And so he's saying this common purpose requires something more elemental. And I come back to that again. What really is that? And how how the heck do we define, if, if we can't define it, how do we describe it? How do we recognize it when we see it? What is this elemental thing? I don't know what you thought about that. I, I, I didn't pick that up, but the, the, the idea of, you know, both looking backwards and forwards so um i i took that to you know double check whether it was you know foreseeable and therefore whether there was a, a an import you know on on the terms of the contract as well so uh, i think it's a balancing thing it's trying to look at the contract when it was made when it was made and to, yes and, and try and understand what was the objectives there in the contract and then compare it with what has become as it were almost like a sort of balancing scale that you're holding in your hand yes and and trying to see how far out of balance are we yes from that yeah and it's really got to be quite a heavy imbalance before we get to decide that, that actually this is frustration. So we've almost got to tilt the balance completely down on the one side because this is radical. They, they use that sort of language, don't they, that this is a radical change. This is not what I promised. This is uh, something uh, pretty major to uh, have changed the circumstances, the basic assumptions of the party. So I come back to this elemental thing. What 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 the heck is that? I think it's... a. Uh... It's an allowance for the court to look, as it were, beyond the contract and identify what we were saying earlier on is, is there ele any element here that they were trying to share the risk for this outside event? Is there any way that this became, back to our bakery example, a, a, a common goal, as it were? Was this what they were trying to do together, or is it one party providing one thing and the other party taking the entire risk for uh, for that? I think it's a an, an inroad into that. I must admit, I'm seven, with Severine on this one that I didn't pick that up as a. I know I've actually gone. A, I've actually gone to read where he says so, and you know that that that's where it actually becomes interesting, and I I, I guess that's probably where Maggie you you know that will lead you to the 
um, third question, I think, that you have. Well, yes, uh, I suppose it does. My third question is, how far apart are we with frustration and common mistake? Are these things travelling on parallel paths? Are they uniting at some point? Uh, how different are they, if if you like? So I, I don't know what you thought about that. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll let Tim, you know, Mr. Mr. Mistake, but Mr. It, mistake. Is, it is, you know, I, 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 almost, I almost feel ashamed that I didn't pick up the elemental because if I read the paragraph and, you know, for well, those Severin, of Well, Severin, that is one word. No, no, what did you say? I know. 150 pages. No, 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 no. But it, it, it is interesting to see, you know, one of the things that the way he says it. So it's uh, for those of you who want to go and read it, it's a small paragraph, it's paragraph 29, but when after looking at, you know, the the unforeseen aspect of um, uh, uh, frustration, he says, uh, but that is not so much the end of the doctrine of frustration as its beginning, and then that's where he goes on. Fundamentally, uh, one has to have regard to something much more elemental. So, uh, yeah, Tim, you know, the, the you know these almost seeing it as a, a a circle, and so yeah, the link with mistake is, um, yeah, I think I'll have to think about that. I think maybe there is an article somewhere <laughs> coming onto this, you know, for the <laughs> elemental, you know. I have to say that the common mistake frustration element has, of course, been no, discussed. Yes, yes, as, yes. Uh, you know, uh, to some extent. So I'm, I'm going to. I mean, the, the clear, the clear answer is it's, it's a timing issue. Yes. Um, but I think, I think there is quite, quite the combination. I think, and I've argued this elsewhere. Is, with both doctrines, we have the difficulty, and this is where we started to kind of mess around it when we got to kind of partial frustration. You know, the, how on earth do you have partial frustration? But we were trying to edge our way into that. Is is really there's there's a change in the substance of the agreement. The big difficulty we have is that simple all or nothing approach that we can't just say, well, let's just adjust the terms of the contract. Um, this would be probably not a prime example where we could say, well, we could adjust the contract a little bit uh, to fix the circumstance. So from that point of view, I think this was, well, you're probably going to ask us, Maggie, whether we think this is the right decision. Well, so I, 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 I was going to say, adjusting the contract doesn't sound to me like it would meet the tests of frustration anyway, because how radical... Would the change have been if it is cured, as it were, by some adjustment? Uh, I, I would have thought the whole premise of frustration is this thing is so radical that you couldn't cure it by adjustment, because if you could, uh, presumably the parties would have some motivation to do that themselves by variation or a new contract. Change of circumstances. Well, they wouldn't if they, if they had the option to simply get out of it. So take inflation, for example. That would be a great example of where you could yeah. simply adjust the contract, which the parties are not going to do if one party thinks they can completely get out of the deal. Yeah. So I, th I think from that point of view, change of circumstances does have its place or could, could have a place if the court were able to do that. But we're getting into the whole fairness aspect, which we know the court is not wanting to get into, mm. which is can, 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 I'm looking now at the substance of the agreement rather than the procedure. Um, but change of circumstances would allow for an adjustment of the contract a lot sooner than when frustration would normally kick in. I think because it's, it's less radical in its, in, in its approach. But a change yeah. of circumstance would allow 
the, the parties to, I mean, change of circumstance in the way, for example, the new French uh, civil code does it is, you know, there is a change of circumstance and then the parties have to start negotiating. Uh, so I don't know how it is in Germany, uh, Tim, but that, that would be one element. But I guess we are quite far away. <laughs> and, and, we need, and we need to take into account, of course, that the simple allowance of that through the law will, will avoid a lot of cases. So the, the simple fact that the, that, that the parties know that the law will, make, will adjust the contract is a motivation for them to enter negotiations to adjust the contract. Whereas if one of the parties thinks they can simply get out of the contract, or the other party thinks that you know, if they win, they're going to win the whole pot, we're in a very different situation. True. But the all of that is more likely to take it to court. Anathema to English law, though, isn't it? Because of the uncertainty and the idea of interfering with parties' contractual terms, that's not what English law is geared up to do. It, it runs in completely the opposite direction. And yet it's it a, it's does, a, but it's a, that's another discussion. Well, it's an all-or-nothing thing, isn't it? Uh, the contract either stands as it is, unless and until the parties renegotiate, that's entirely for them, or it is destroyed at this point, frustrated. We don't have a middle clause so far as English law is concerned. Sorry, I meant to whether... Well, unless we look at the partial frustration type of cases, yeah. Yeah, where well, they, they're they do un try unusual, and find the middle ground. Which, well, but so is frustration. Well, okay. I, this, is, this is the only Brexit frustration case we have, and it is, we have to accept, the, the absolute last argument you're going to look for, in a way. This is, it is so fundamental. I mean, I, I, I don't know of another fr frustration of purpose case in, in however long um, that actually meant, you know, that was a serious argument. And here, this is not a good one for it, I don't think, because... Well, as we as we discussed earlier on, um, but I great to see it come up. Again. I suppose the background to all of this is it's a twenty-five year term and presumably has no break clause in it, and that would mm -hmm. have been an aspect of the negotiation. In other words, the EMA were tied into this, committed for a twenty-five year term. One has to assume that they got something out of that, as it were, in, in the negotiating process. So, you know, English, Agreed. English Agreed. law would not yeah. want to upset that bargaining position by seeming to give them something over and above what they had negotiated for themselves. True. Except that in that negotiation phase, no one actually asked the question of what happens if we exit the EU. Because at that time, it was completely unforeseen. Otherwise, if it had been No, but, but what I'm so, talking about is a break clause regardless of motivation, just a, a simple natural entitlement for any reason or no reason to, to stop at year five or year 10 or whatever. And you do get some leases that have break clauses, but um, that's a perhaps a disincentive or a disadvantage to the landlord, and he wants some quid pro quo for that. And, and they must have discussed this, I imagine, because 25 years is a, is a long period of time. That's true. Um, I, I don't know what you... I picked up something tiny in, in Tritle, um, and, and I don't know if it was uh, there in the um, original Tritle, as it were, when, when Professor Gunter Tritle was writing it, or whether it's Professor Peel who currently writes it. But um, anyway, he, he says that um, frustration is um, 
uh, an easier thing to show than a mistake. Uh, it's not easy, but on a relative comparison, as it were, uh, English law is even more reluctant, if I put it negatively, as, as our law really is expressed negatively, is even more reluctant to say, yes, this is common mistake than it is to say frustration. Uh, and I wondered what you thought about that, whether uh, that is right or whether it should be right. I mean, the only things that I can see is uh, for mistake, of course, the contract is void. It never was. And that's a pretty draconian or extreme outcome. So English law nat naturally would be very hesitant to reach that position anyway. Whereas in frustration, it's not the contract is void. It simply stops, stops. At, yeah. at a moment of time. So I can see that the end outcome, as it were, is of less severity, if I could put it that way. And therefore, that might justify a difference in, in approach between the two doctrines. And also, the um, therefore, the consequences are slightly less drastic. Yes, in, you know. yes, they are, because we're not destroying no. the contract from the yeah. beginning. We are stopping it at a moment of time. Yeah. That must be less extreme, theoretically, yeah. at any yeah. rate. Yeah. Um, and the other point probably uh, is, is sort of uh, warming to Tim's uh, outlook about risk, because uh, you, you were talking recently about risk allocation. Um, yeah. And I wonder whether the, the law, I don't know if it's thought through in this way or rationalised uh, explicitly in any case law, perhaps you'd know better than me, but it, it looks to me that maybe English law approaches a common mistake with a sort of assumption or presumption almost that parties should take care to assess the known risks at that point. And it is easier to know what the current state of play is uh, than, of course, we can never know what the future holds. Uh, and and, and I think that is exactly the point. Yes, frustration is, is about is the uncertainty of the future. And perhaps we ought to have a system of law that makes it a little bit easier to exit using frustration than to kill off the contract through mistakes. I, I wondered what you thought about that. I, I think that's bang on. I think the risk allocation is a key part, particularly in the common mistake type cases, where in most of the cases, one party, and it would be clear from, from the process, but also from the contract, is assuming responsibility for something. And therefore, if there is a, I'm, I'm going to say a mistake by both, then it is often induced by the other party. Yeah, um, right. And I think that can be done much more easily if it's already happened rather than if it's going to happen in the future. Yes. And I think that that is one of the fundamental differences there is, is, is risk is a key part in, in both, but one of them is, is easier to point the finger at and say, well, you did, you did imply that when you said, you know, th the object existed. Even though arguably that's the purpose of a force majeure clause, um, you know, whereby the parties are going to try not so very always successfully because of course a force majeure needs to be interpreted as really really covering um you know exactly what has happened and so unless it does then it's not going but it a, a force majeure is always going to be uh, a question of allocation of risk and um funnily enough the the that's how also you know the three cases that uh 
we were talking about um, earlier through the email, the, the Limbungen and the Fibulaia travel and all those cases about um, um, allocation of risk. Maggie, I, I, I noticed that also in the Limbungen case, the court also said that um, the force majeure can sometimes be seen as an exclusion clause. So therefore, you know, again, the allocation of risk, because of course, that's how the court interpret an exclusion clause. So, yeah, the allocation of risk does, you know, can, can apply to more than, you know, mistake, I think. Well, I suppose you have to ask yourself, where does the the risk lie, uh, regardless of that clause? And therefore, is that clause doing something about that existing risk? But, uh, yeah, it, all of this is very murky, complex law, is it not? But do, it's do very we, interesting. We, 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 Yes, we have. We've uh, unpacked, I think, and sent to bed Canary Wharf. Yes. Do, you, do you agree? Yes, absolutely. So I think we we can end now. So thank you, dear listener, both of you. For, for, <laughs> thank you, for mum and dad. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>